welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and that's it for today. We're just doing a short this month. Uh, something to kick off December here. Uh, I went on social media recently to ask what people wanted covered before Luxember and got some great suggestions. The one that I'm going to cover today is creating your words based on a theme. Many Luxember entrants do themes throughout the month or follow lists of prompt words from places like Con Workshop. And I think it's an interesting way to get your juices flowing. I'm going to talk about this mostly as it relates to a naturalistic art lang, since that's what I have experience with. But I think these sorts of themes and prompts can help with any sort of conlang. Before we get to that, Conlangery is supported by our patrons over at Patreon. Thanks to our patrons, I've been able to move the site over to its own hosting, which has given me more control and hopefully will take a little bit of stress off of the LCS's hosting plan. Uh, you'll also see that little padlock icon on the site now, which will make you slightly more secure when commenting and using the site and also prevent browsers from yelling at people visiting. By the way, if you pledge $10 or more per month, you can say, see the scripts for these shorts that I do uh, as they are written, so before they're recorded. On another note, the Language Creation Society just announced its President's Scholarship. They're accepting applications from people who are affiliated with educational institutions who either want to do research on conlangs or who want to teach a conlanging class. I'll have the link in the show notes for anyone interested in applying. There are two $500 scholarships available, and the deadline for this coming year's applications is January 15th, 2020. If you're a naturalistic conlanger, everything about your language can be an opportunity for world building. But the lexicon is where I find the deepest world building potential. Most grammar and phonology is culturally agnostic. It can be influenced by things like politeness culture and literary customs, but just about any grammatical feature can be dropped into whatever culture you wish. That's not true for words. The lexicon is deeply related to how your people view the world. It's how they divide up and name the parts of the world, and it has fantastic cultural implications. That said, being too heavy-handed on the cultural aspects could backfire. What you want is to have an idea of some cultural values and ideas that will guide what words you create and how they are framed, as well as a variety of real-world and con-world knowledge to guide you. Keeping culture in mind and even building it alongside your words can help you when working with prompts or themes to make richer and more interesting choices of words. In 2015, I did a cluster of words related to childbearing influenced by the birth of my first child on December 17th. This wasn't the entirety of my Lexember that year, and I did a few words outside of Lexember, but I did have an extended period where I was looking at birth-related terms specifically. In doing so, I had to consider what medical knowledge the estatimic would have, what cultural associations they would have with birth, and the who and how of delivering babies in their culture. One place where this led to a particular choice was in the derivation of kenri, meaning placenta. It derives from ken, meaning moon, and ri, meaning meat or flesh. I didn't come up with this from any natlang inspiration, Rather, I looked at pl pictures of placentas and saw that they seemed to look round 
and quite unsurprisingly meaty in a less than appetizing way. But the cultural question brought in the moon. I decided that the Estatimique would associate themes of birth and reproduction with the moon, considering menstrual cycles to be following the lunar cycle. What words you choose to make can also come through cultural building. My children were delivered by doctors, but I imagine that in Estati culture, as in many cultures now and in the past, childbirth would be more commonly attended by midwives. But then the question becomes, who are the midwives? I imagine that most of them would be older women, perhaps too old to give birth themselves, but having experienced it. I had a root pook that I used in the terms for grandmother and clan matriarch, so it seemed perfect to use this for another term referring to old women. I also decided the term should be an older compound, owing to the long-standing cultural status of midwives which meant that it, unlike some newer compounds, had been altered by vowel harmony. For the other element, I chose mate, catch, usually used for something slow moving. So not catching a ball, but catching something sliding. For the act of catching the baby as it falls from the birth canal, and thus came the term matepok. Sometimes you may have ideas for the world building that aren't so salient from the word or the dictionary entry. When I created the word nitik, lanugo, the fine hairs that cover a newborn's body, there was not that much depth to the etymology in terms of cultural meaning. Nitik is also the word for down feathers, as I felt that was a good metaphor to draw from. But that was about it. However, in my mind, I considered how this would be related to Istati elemental beliefs. The Istatimik exist in a fantasy world, and among them are some of the best alchemists in that world. At that time, I had them following an elemental system somewhat taken from the Wuxing, or five Taoist elements. So I felt that they might look for signs in childbirth for affinity to a particular element. Hair is associated with wood, so an ex excess of nitik could be associated with a strong affinity for wood. Feces is associated with earth, so things like passing meconium before birth and surviving, it's a suffocation risk, might be a sign of connection with earth. Children born with an intact fluid sac would be strong with water, clearly. None of these associations made its way overtly into the language. I could have put them in, but not all of your cultural associations and practices have to be explicit in the formation of words. Perhaps this would have an effect on how alchemists talk about these phenomena, but I didn't really feel it even needed to be in dictionary entries. In this case, it was more that thinking about these concepts while creating the language helped me to solidify what they would mean outside of the immediate word formation. In other words, a theme through a cultural lens absolutely can help you with etymology and polysemy, but it helps just as much with selecting words to create and with broader cultural context. When I went to the community asking for their experiences and pointers for working with a theme, I got a number of interesting responses. Dylan Moonfire is one of the first people I noticed doing a themed Luxember, and he happened to respond when I was asking for example. Here is what he said. 
When I did measurements two years ago, I basically started with what I thought the culture would have as base units, like a fist for volume, and then used what I had developed in the culture to figure out the derived units from there to refine them into modern usage. With last year, it was geography, so I focused on the physical area around them. It was a desert culture, so there were a lot of words for different types of rock, sand, gravel, winds, etc. However, the rivers and forests had relatively fewer because they were used less. This year, I'm switching to a fantasy nomadic language set in steppes slash forests slash plains. But the magic is in the land, so the focus is going to be on the concept of land ownership slash claims slash fallow, along with continual travels built up around the culture's concept of tapping land. I really like this idea of the physical environment being something to consider in your conlanging. It's very grounding to imagine where your cultures are and then understanding from that what words they would need and how they would view the things around them. You don't need a map for this. You just need to have the basics of what biome they're in and perhaps what local natural landmarks exist, like a large mountain or a major river. Beyond just the words for the concrete environment, that will also give you an idea of what metaphors they might use and a little bit about what might become culturally important to them. I also specifically reached out to Zeke Fordsmender, who did a theme a couple years ago about date farming. He gave me a long email detailing how he went about his research and word formation process, which I will include in the show notes under the script for those interested. I've extracted a few relevant parts here. Kariol, the language of the date palm growers, is spoken in a country called Tuao by a people called the Tuaogoe. But going into Lexembers 2017, I didn't know much about them besides their name. The Tuaogoe are actually the bad guys in my con world. They're imperialists, and the premise of the project has always been, though it remains unrealized, to produce creoles in each of Tuao's occupied colonies with Kariol as the superstrate language and local languages as the ad and substrate languages. I had been very impressed by Conlanger and writer Dylan Moonfire's 2015 Lexember work. That year, he'd come up with 31 different words for units of measure in his con world, and it struck me that a Lexember theme could be used almost like a writer's prompt, the sort that a fiction writer might use to invigorate a stagnant idea. Rather than producing vocabulary for concepts I already had in place, I wanted to explore what-ifs by letting new ideas develop from the previous day's work. The idea to explore date cultivation specifically I arrived at rather arbitrarily. Other ideas I had were perfume or glass manufacture. I ultimately used glass as my 2018 Lexember, or river ferrying and boat building. But I had in the back of my mind the famously vast Somali vocabulary for camel husbandry which I'd seen produced by linguistically savvy people as a response to the linguistically unsavvy trotting out the Inuit 40 words for snow. And I felt that the rural economy was the most fertile place to begin exploring. I nailed down only two bits of canon before I started making my word. That Tuao was a desert nation and that their colonial ambitions were a result of their own country being deforested and 
that the Tuao heartland was along the banks of what we call the Nile. But they hadn't lived there particularly long, less than a thousand years. This was important to some work I'd already done on a Sprachbund I wanted Cariol to be part of. I wanted Cariol to be invasive but also well established where it was spoken. Zeke goes on to describe how the Tuao had been oasis hoppers in the Sahara who later settled along the Nile. There is a lot of world building detail in his email that I'll let y'all read below including how something alarming about his source material led to a new inspiration. But long story short, the Tuao chose date palms as a source of food, wood, and valuable trade goods that grows both on the oases that they came from and along the river where they settled down. From there, some research and careful thought brought him to a great wealth of words that related to breeds of date palms, the type and quality of fruit, and so many other things involved. He also discussed the cultural associations he made when he dealt with the polysemy of his words. Woi refers to, one, a distinguished and respected man, and specifically a man, not a woman, or to, two, a male date palm tree, specifically because the properties of a male date palm tree in cultivation can be associated with a distinguished man. The idea being that because farmers keep only a few male date palms in order to fertilize the female trees, they would develop special relationships with rituals to ensure fertility in the fields and a general respect for a venerable old tree that produces good stock. Recently, I have been reading Theories of Lexical Semantics by Dirk Geirarts. It's a broad historical review of lexical semantic theory starting back in the 19th century. Geirarts early on highlights two strains of lexical semantic theory that are relevant here, which go by the names of semasiology and onomasiology. Semasiology focuses on the meaning of single words, particularly in terms of polysemy and semantic chain. It's what you do when you are describing the different senses of a word or categorize the ways individual words change meanings, such as generalization, specialization, and other kinds of meaning shifts. Onomasiology, however, sees the lexicon as a connected system. The name onomasiology contains the term onoma, deriving from the Greek for name. Per Gerarts, this comes from the fact that an onomasiological point of view often discusses how we are finding names for and categorizing things in the world. Put another way, a semasiological view would consider the mechanism by which computers shifted from a person who computes as a profession to an electronic device designed to perform computations as a fact about that word, and might say it's some sort of lateral change along functional lines. An onomasiological view would point out that we invented this new electronic device for doing computations and we needed a word for it. And computer was a logical choice to fill the gap, especially as the profession computer was rapidly becoming obsolete. Both of these views are important. And I think conlangers should have both in mind when building words. Having a semasiological point of view is useful when you are in the weeds of where this one word comes from and what secondary senses it has. Onomasiology is useful when determining what words you need in the first place, how the meanings of those words relate to the meanings of other words, and how your system generally is defining the world around your speaker. That said, 
I think that using a theme for your Lexember words is a particularly good way to encourage more onomasiological thinking in the process. You can find interesting ways of looking at lexicons onomasiologically when looking at smaller thematic subsets of a lexicon, such as kinship terms or color terms. Sure, the word uncle has a meaning all of its own, but it's also part of a network of related terms that all define relationships between each other and with the ego, and that's a system laden with cultural meaning. I can say that Chinese can translate uncle as bo bo, shu shu, jiu jiu, yi fu, or gu fu, but until I explain the broader system, it doesn't mean much. Even listing out the meanings, bo bo is your father's older brother, jiu jiu is your mother's brother, gu fu is the husband of your father's older sister, etc. doesn't fully explain the system, though it will start to get you there. The thing to understand ultimately is that Chinese distinguishes these terms based on birth order and whether relatives are part of your paternal line, distinctions that Chinese makes because they are historically culturally important for understanding who is considered part of your family and who has power within the family. This is where picking a theme helps with onomasiological thinking, or thinking of the lexicon as a system that defines the world. It might be easy to take a list of words and make your conlang equivalents to them, but if you are picking a theme to riff off of, now you have to start deciding what words you are going to work with. The theme becomes the domain that you are coining words in, and as you build your words, you can build the web of references between them. Choose domesticated animals, and you have to decide what animals your con people raise, what the animals are used for, and what features will be salient. Will they have detailed distinctions of horses based on sex, age, and function as English does? Or will they end up with similarly detailed vocabulary for camels, like Somali, or reindeer, like Sami? Pick architecture, and now you have the opportunity to research historical building technologies. Do your people have concrete, arches, adobe, steel reinforcement? How does their environment shape their architecture? Are there frequent earthquakes or floods? Is it a warm, cold, or temperate climate? Do they have cultural considerations about which direction buildings face, or buildings that follow a specific plan that requires specialized vocabulary, like the cathedrals of Europe with their naves and apses. All of this feeds into the two questions you need to ask. What are the things in the speaker's world, and how do they understand those things? With the right approach and the right theme, you can turn a conlanging exercise into a rich world-building exercise. I had considered ending this episode with my own list of themes that I would present for Lexember conlangers to follow. But I think ultimately each conlang is unique, and you may know better what semantic categories you need to develop better than me. So if you've got a theme or several, or you're following one of the lists, I hope this has been helpful for y'all to figure out where to go from there. As always, I will be watching Lexember posts on Twitter and Tumblr and trying to highlight some favorites. I hope that I'll also be able to participate. Thank you all for listening, and happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Conlangery is supported by our patrons over at Patreon. 
A special thank you to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Graham Hill, and Margaret Ranstall Green, as well as all of our other patrons for their support. Con Langery is under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution share alike license. You may use Con Langery in any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided and you use the same license on that work. Con Langery's website was designed by Bianca Richards and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>